Summer camp was the happiest time of my life until we discovered the Amhaluk at the bottom of the lake. I was only 14 years old, but the horrific nightmare I witnessed at Fork Mountain Summer Camp has stuck with me for 16 years now. I was a troubled kid and it was difficult for me to make friends, but in truth, I was just angry at the world. I didn't want friends, I just wanted to be left alone to wallow in my own self-pity. My parents' divorce felt personal, and my mother's decision to send me away the first chance she got only reinforced that feeling. So when we boarded the bus that would take us up that long mountain highway in northwest Oregon, I immediately went to the back row. Mona boarded last behind all the chattering kids who greeted their friends from last year. But nobody greeted Mona. The small blonde girl with a baggy sweater and bright pink cast on her right arm looked from familiar face to familiar face, hoping to be recognized from her previous years at the camp. Unfortunately, if they did notice her, they pretended not to. Despite them, Mona kept a positive smile on her face as she shuffled to the back of the bus. Hi, she said, taking the seat next to me. Hey, I replied, ever the withdrawn teenager. My name is Mona, she beamed, holding out her cast-covered hand for a shake. Alex, I replied, awkwardly shaking the fingers that poked out from beneath the plaster. First year? She asked. I nodded. Third, she said, scooting a little closer. The counselor's going to ask everyone if they've got a camp pal. I don't. Do you? I shook my head. And sure enough, the counselor quickly got our attention up front. He asked us to pair off, but the entire bus had already done so, leaving Mona and I no other choice but to be camp pals. To her credit, Mona really took the pairing to heart, and despite my dour mood, always tried to be positive with me. Eventually, her cheery mood was somehow enough to warm my cold teenage heart. What started as a forced partnership eventually blossomed into a real friendship. Mona's arm kept her from participating in most activities, and my asthma was an excuse to hang back with her. Even when it wasn't, I still found a way to keep her company. It was those afternoons we spent sitting under a tree and talking about comic books, cool bands, and our emotionally distant parents that we really started to bond. While the other kids shot arrows, swam, and played tag, we exchanged theories on the Goosebumps expanded universe. It was on one of those hot summer days where we sat at the end of the dock, talking about scary stories and watching other kids cannonball off the raft, that she first told me about the Amhaluk. A lake monster? Like an alligator? I laughed. No, it's real. I've seen it. She said, dead serious. You've seen a lake monster? I asked, unsure if she was just making up her own spooky story. Yeah, it's down there. It sleeps during the day. At night he walks to the shore, and the ground softens and sinks where he steps. Everything around him seems to drown. Even the trees are pulled under. I laughed uncomfortably. The Creek Indians were the first to see it, and that's why they never settled up here. They knew... She said, tossing a stone and skipping it across the calm water, trying to convince me. Okay, but we're here. Wouldn't the counselors know? Why would they let us swim? I asked, unsure if she was just making up her own spooky story. They know. She said, glancing over at the counselors flirting with each other, ignoring the kids splashing below. She must have sensed my disbelief, because she dropped the subject moments later. I let it go but from that moment on I could feel her discomfort every time we neared the lakeshore. 
Even though I initially hated the idea, summer camp became a place where I truly felt like I could be myself. Mona didn't judge me, and the other kids barely paid attention. For the first time in a long time, I felt happy. But it didn't last. As Mona and I grew closer, I could feel her longing for a connection with the other kids, too. I tried to tell her that we were the only company we needed, and that the other kids weren't worthy of our keen intellect and superior sense of humor. She laughed and agreed, but I still caught her daydreaming as she watched some of the other kids eat lunch and laugh at a crowded table, while her and I sat alone on our empty bench. While I was content in the single friendship I made, she still longed for a greater connection. She wanted to be a part of something more. As the end of camp neared and the other kids began to plan their skits and presentations for the talent show, I begged her to sit it out with me, but she insisted that we participate. Secretly, I believed she felt that it was her lack of participation in previous years that directly led to a lack of friends. But I knew it was something else. I regret now that I didn't go up on stage with her. I should have been her friend and supported her even though I knew how it would end. At the very least, if I were there, we would have been laughed at together. But I didn't. I watched her on that stage, desperate for approval and thirsting for validation, as she showed off her papier-mâché dragon that she said was the Amhaluk. She then read from her notebook, the history of the creature and the century-old folklore that surrounded it. Her presentation was met with crickets, until one of the kids threw a soda can and knocked her creation to the ground. When it caved in on impact, the crowd erupted with laughter. The tears came down before she even made it off stage. She went directly to her bunk and barricaded the door. I tried to get in, but she refused to listen. I knew she felt abandoned by me. Long after the talent show ended, when the kids feasted on cheap ice cream one last time, did the counselors finally push their way into the cabin. Mona was already asleep or at the very least pretended to be. I tried to talk to her, but she ignored me. It was already difficult for me to sleep, so when I heard the quiet creak of the cabin door, I bolted awake. Mona's bunk was empty, and her flashlight was gone. I quickly dressed and followed. I could see her light bouncing among the trees as she walked past the edges of the camp boundaries. I wanted to shout and tell her to slow down, but I was afraid of getting caught. So instead, I hurried after her through the dark, looming woods. The closer that I got to her, the more that the land around me seemed to change. The forest floor gave way to soft mud, and the trees themselves were becoming more sparse. I finally reached her at the edge of an old abandoned dock at the end of a muddy clearing. Mona! What are you doing? I shouted through the darkness. Her eyes remained fixed forward on the still black lake. I'm going to prove it, she said, her voice weak and sad. Prove what? I asked, reaching out for her arm. She pulled away. That the Amhaluk is real, she said quietly. It's not, I said desperately. You'll see, when he takes me under like he does the rest, they will find me hanging from his horns. I'll regret laughing, she whimpered. I took her hand. I'll wait with you, I said, but can we wait on the shore? She finally turned, tears in her eyes, and agreed. Okay. It was cold, but my coat was heavy and we huddled together for warmth. 
we leaned against a toppled old pine and hugged. I didn't laugh. I thought your monster was really cool, I said. Yeah, you helped make it though, she said with a sad smile. You're really cool, like the coolest person in the camp. They just don't have the brains to comprehend it. Oh, and your brain can? <laughs> she asked with a laugh. Barely, I admitted. We sat there in silence, both thinking about what it all meant. What we meant together. Eventually, she adjusted herself, moving away from me just a tiny bit. I just didn't want to be here in the morning. <laughs> I didn't want to see them laugh at me again. She said, swallowing the lump in her throat. They already forgot. Jet Pearson peed his pants on command for his skit and they lapped it up. Thought he was a real laugh riot. Their tiny brains didn't have room to remember anything else, I explained. Lapped it up? Ew. She giggled. You know what I mean, I sighed. She cuddled back into me and didn't say another word. We sat there next to the lakeshore, and eventually we drifted off to sleep. Despite the damp earth and the cold air, it was the most comfortable I'd ever felt in my life. I have no idea how long I had been asleep, but it must have been hours. When I awoke, Mona was gone. I was by myself, still sitting in the damp soil, but now it felt more wet than before, as if the tide had come in. But lakes do not have tides. Quickly, I got to my feet and turned on my flashlight. Fog had collected on the surface of the lake and moved in to surround me. Mona! I called out, but my voice was lost in the stillness of the night. Not even the sound of crickets could be heard. I scanned my surroundings with the light and soon realized that this was not the same place I had fallen asleep. The log we had leaned against was the same, but everything else was different. The trees had been toppled and uprooted. Some were dragged to the water where the branches were pulled under and their roots stuck out like tentacles reaching for the stars. The dock, though, that was still there too. I walked towards it with my shoes squishing into the soft mud of the shore and pointed my flashlight into the fog. I heard a quiet splash and movement of water somewhere in the distance ahead. Mona? You're scaring me, I cried. My feet met the dock with the creaky moan of old wood, and I continued on. Halfway down the dock, I could no longer see the shore behind me, lost in the fog. Mona then called out. I'm here, she said, almost in a whisper. Let's go back, please. I begged. I'm right here. She replied with her voice just up ahead. When I reached the end of the dock, Mona was not there. The black water before me was still, and the fog danced above it. Come closer, she said, her voice drifting in through the fog from somewhere out on the water. I'm scared, I said. Her flashlight clicked on, dangling at her side. A gauzy white light lingering in the fog, floating above the water. I'm right here, she said, her form slowly drifting towards me, somehow suspended in the fog. The flashlight was barely gripped in her hands, and she let the beam wander as she approached. Her face was pale and emotionless, 
and her hair was dripping wet. In fact, her whole body seemed to be soaked to the core, heavy with black water. My mind struggled to comprehend the image before me, my best friend floating just above the glassy surface of the lake. It made no sense at first. When she was near enough to see, I noticed that her eyes were not bright. They did not focus on me. Instead, they drifted from side to side in different directions, as if unstuck. She spoke again. Come closer. But her mouth did not move with her words. I stepped back as she got closer. In shock, my flashlight drifted from her to the water as I felt myself unwilling to see what she truly was. The closer she got, though, the higher she rose until she was four feet above the water itself. I composed myself and directed the flashlight on her. What I saw was something more terrible than anything my teenage brain could handle. Mona's chest had been pierced by the tip of a ghastly green and brown antler, like that of a deer's, but so much larger. That is what held her afloat above the water, her limbs dangling at her side. I stumbled backward, and as my wits left me, so did the fog that surrounded us. She was then revealed. A gigantic creature of rot and death. The Amhulik stood in the lake with spider-like legs, dripping wet and covered in coarse hair. His body was bloated and pale like a corpse that had sunk and unsurfaced. His head was white bone with a long skeletal snout like that of an elk, but his eyes were somehow human. The antlers themselves stuck out like branches from his head, spreading twelve feet in both directions. Trinkets that had been lost to the lake, old lockets, watches, and even a life vest dangled from his horns. He gently shook his head, and Mona's body swung from side to side. His soulless, bloodshot eyes met mine, and she spoke. Come closer, he said in Mona's sad, childlike voice. I felt the dock below me shudder as the Amhalut crept closer as though it were about to sink into the lake with me still on it. Terrified, I turned and ran. I ran as fast as I could, but my feet sunk into the wet mud, holding my sneakers in place. I looked back to see the monster step foot onto the shore, the black lake water spreading out from each sunken impression from his cloven hoof. I abandoned my shoes, half-submerged in the sticky brown mud, and stumbled into the forest. I could hear the crashing of trees behind me as he pulled them down. I raced toward the camp, screaming for help as I tried to navigate the flashlight. More than once, I stumbled and tripped on a root or log or unseen hole. When I finally reached the camp, I was covered in mud, shoeless and out of breath. My voice was hoarse from screaming, and I found it difficult to yell for help. Eventually, I was met by a counselor that had already been searching for us. One of the other campers had seen me leave and reported it. I was told that they had been searching all night, but somehow didn't make it down to that side of the lake. Deep down, I knew why. I was frantic in my ranting as I tried to explain what I saw, but my insane ramblings did little to help convince them that Mona was in danger. It was almost morning by the time they let me lead them back to the spot. Mona was not there, but we did find my shoes and her flashlight sitting neatly at the end of the rickety wooden dock. The most unsettling thing, though, was how calm they seemed in handling the situation. Looks like she went for a midnight dip, joked one of the counselors. This isn't a joke, I screamed. 
Kids run away all the time. There isn't anything we can do about it but wait for her to come back, smiled the other counselor. The Amhaluk took her, I yelled, but it was as if my words meant nothing. They just nodded as if what I said was ordinary and expected. Without so much as a glance into the lake, they turned and headed back toward camp. It's always the lonely ones, one quietly said to the other. I stood back on the dock waiting for them to turn around. One of the counselors felt me lingering back and paused at the clearing, still unwilling to face me. You know, this is why we have a buddy system, they said, and then continued on back to camp. As the campers packed up, Mona's bunk remained the same. They waited until we were all gone to remove her stuff. There wasn't a single mention of her absence in the final days of camp, and only a brief reminder of the camp borders during a regular assembly. I rode the bus home on a bench by myself. Mona and I never exchanged numbers, and I never got her last name, so I wasn't able to follow up or ask her parents what happened. Instead, it seemed as though she disappeared, forgotten and ignored. The only person who listened to me was my mother, though it was clear she didn't fully believe me. In the camp, it was widely accepted that Mona had gone swimming by herself in the middle of the night and that she had drowned by accident. Unless you ask the more observant ones, they believed it was on purpose. Regardless, Mona was gone. My best friend and only ally in this bitter world had been taken from me because I refused to help her. If I had been there that night with her on stage, the laughs wouldn't have stung as much and we could have shared the pain. Maybe she wouldn't have decided to go down there. Maybe she would have just slept in my bunk instead. Either way, I felt guilty for letting her go it alone. My mother agreed to let me go to my father's the following summer, saving me from having to revisit the place where I'd lost the only person who truly understood me. I never made it back to that camp or Fork Mountain, or the lake. I never dared step foot in those woods for fear that he would come back for me. They found her body months later, still looking the same as the day she disappeared. They said it was the cold depths of the lake that preserved her like that, but I knew the truth. It was because the Amhaluk had kept her, hoping I'd return. Salutations, all you dark passengers, and thank you for taking the time to listen to this story. I'd like to thank the author, Strange Dangerous, of the No Sleep subreddit, for granting me permission to narrate the story for you. I have a huge shout-out for Yanks for contributing his voice. A big thank you to Romnex for contributing both her voice and her feedback. A massive thank you to the Dark Somnium for lending me your music. Last, but definitely not least, I want to express my gratitude to IndieMads95 for doing the voice of Mona. Your voice work really made this story something I'm proud to present. Thank you. <laughs>